Good morning. John chapter 20. We're finally here. For those of you that are just joining us, uh, we've been going through the book of John this entire year. And it's amazing how time just seemed to stop once we got uh, to chapter 11, chapter 12, um, and uh, realized that, um, you know, John covered a a great deal of material in the first 11 chapters of the book, and then he spends the, the second half of the book covering six days. And so it's, a, it's jam-packed. And of course, John is just one of the gospel writers. So we're getting one particular perspective on the things that occurred during Jesus' uh, Passion Week before going to the cross. And today, uh, we come to a glorious chapter, chapter 20, where we learn of the resurrection and I uh, thought I would share with you a quotation from Malcolm Muggeridge, um, who was the famous uh, English journalist, uh, apologist, Christian thinker, uh, probably all sorts of, of, of titles that, that he could have. But um, he writes, uh, if, if, if you're not familiar with, with Malcolm Muggeridge, um, his writing is, is amazing. He has a way of putting things and saying things that just grab you. And from his seeing through the eye, he writes and says the following, plenty of great teachers, mystics, martyrs, and saints have spoken words full of grace and truth. In the case of Jesus alone, however, The belief has persisted that when he had come into the world, God condescended to take on the likeness of a man. For myself, as I approach my end, I find Jesus' outrageous claim ever more captivating and meaningful. Quite often, waking up in the night as the old do, I feel myself to be half out of my body, hovering between life and death, with eternity rising in the distance. I see my ancient carcass prone between the sheets, stained and worn like a scrap of paper dropped in the gutter, and hovering over it, myself, like a butterfly, released from its chrysalis stage and ready to fly away. Are caterpillars told of their impending resurrection? How in dying will they be transformed from poor earth crawlers into creatures of the air with exquisitely painted wings? If told, do they believe it? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their heads, no, it cannot be. It is a fantasy. Yet, in the limbo between living and dying. As the night clocks ticks remorsely on, I hear those words, I am the resurrection and the life, and feel myself to be carried along on a great tide of joy and peace. See what I mean? He has a way of expressing things that just grip your heart. And I believe Muggeridge was right. 
it is an outrageous thing to think that God became a man and that he died for sinners and then rose from the dead on our behalf. And as he approached his own death, Muggeridge pondered the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. And for him, they carried him along on a great tide of joy and peace. Why? Simple. He knew who Jesus was. He knew what he had done for him. He understood that the resurrection of Jesus was just the first fruits of many resurrections, including his own. You see, the joy and peace that Muggeridge speaks about is only available to those who believe. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the joy and the peace that is available to those of us who believe. And Lord, as I open up your word this morning, I pray that you would speak through me, that, Lord, that you would overcome my weaknesses in my own flesh and that you would encourage our hearts as we recount the story of the empty tomb and to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our God, I pray. Amen. So after following Jesus from the garden um, to... um, his time before Pilate and ultimately to his crucifixion. We now come to the tomb, but our story doesn't have a happy beginning. It it doesn't begin as you would think. You know, oh yeah, the empty tomb. The empty tomb was a source of great confusion and pain and panic amongst Jesus' disciples. They They didn't wake up get up out of bed that first day of the week and all of a sudden, yes, today is Resurrection Sunday. Let's, let's go to the tomb. Let's, let's, let's find out where Jesus is. That's not what happened here. There is great sorrow. Tears are being shed. There is worry. There is concern. But that's not how the day is going to end. That's how it began. So this morning, I want us to be able to grasp three things from our text, um, three things that I think are, are necessary if we are to experience true joy and peace. And the first is that the discovery of the empty tomb resulted in confusion and fear amongst the disciples. We, we need to understand this if we're to really understand what happens and, and, the, and the implications of what happens afterwards. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 20. I'll have the text up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and he said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
Now, as we begin our journey, we need to remember that the disciples were still in shock. They're still in hiding, fearful that what happened to Jesus might also happen to them. And now we're down to 11 disciples. One of them, Judas, defected. And of the remaining 11 disciples, only John was at the cross. So that, that gives you an idea of the level of fear that the disciples had, that they weren't even there at the end when Jesus was dying on the cross. Only John. So we know that, that they were in hiding, that they were fearful, but I would also imagine that they were feeling pretty guilty because now they've had time to, to think about why weren't we there? We should have been there. I'm so weak. He was there for us. I wasn't there for him. No doubt Peter was beating himself up over his denials that he had just made just, just a couple of days earlier. And, and what is abundantly clear from this chapter is that nobody, nobody believed that they would see Jesus alive again. We know that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning with some women while it was still dark on the first day of the week. She too did not come to see a risen Christ. Rather, she came to anoint a dead body, the body of Christ. And when she arrives, she sees that the stone had been rolled away to the entrance, from the entrance to the tomb. And after looking in and not seeing Jesus' body, she ran off to tell Peter and John. The other women who had come with her evidently remained, and they witnessed two men in dazzling apparel who told them that Jesus had risen. And then they went and told the other disciples who were staying somewhere else. John, like the other gospel writers, does not paint a rosy picture of the disciples. He doesn't paint them as, a, as, as, a, as, as stalwarts of the faith. People who believed, you know, against all odds, despite everything that happened. He, he doesn't. He, he portrays them as people just like you and me, real people, with real doubts, with real struggles, with real fears. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but their hopes were crushed under the weight of a Roman cross. Had they believed, they would have been there at the tomb, or at least they would have been you know, getting ready to have a welcome home party where they were for Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can relate to these people. <laughs> I love reading passages of Scripture that portray the first followers of Christ as, as real people, people like me, because sometimes my faith seems and feels real small. Sometimes I can't believe that I allow the circumstances of life um, 
to, to cause me to forget or even disbelieve the promises of God. And despite the weakness of their faith, Mary's devotion to Jesus is unquestionable. Even though she didn't believe, not fully, she's still there. She was there at the cross. She's there at the tomb. And, and when I look at her, I think to myself, I want a heart like that. I want to have a devotion for Christ like Mary had. I hope you do too. Now the discovery of the empty tomb resulted in confusion and fear amongst the disciples, but the implications of the empty tomb renewed the hope of Peter and John. Let's look at verse three. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Upon hearing Mary's report, Peter and John ran to the tomb. They, they bolted out from hiding because they had to see for themselves if in fact the tomb was empty. John ran on ahead and stopped at the entrance of the tomb. He saw the linen cloths just lying there, but he remained outside the tomb. Peter caught up went right past him into the tomb, and he too saw the linen cloths lying there with the face cloth folded up neatly and laying by itself. Then we're told that John also went in and saw and believed. Now, one of the one of the explanations for the empty tomb that to this day continues to be um, put forth and debunked is that Jesus' body was stolen. That's why the tomb was empty. Well, you have to stop and think about this for a minute. If I can digress just a little bit. Remember that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. This was no small stone in front of the tomb. But if you were to overpower the Roman guards, if you were to be able to roll away the stone, would you really have stayed in the tomb wasting precious time trying to unwrap the body of Jesus? Wouldn't you have just taken him and made a getaway to get out of there as quick as possible before reinforcements came, before you got caught? And besides all that, it would have been nigh to impossible to unravel all the linen cloths 
that Jesus had been bound with. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe in which to bury Jesus. And the impression that we're given here, the picture that we're given, that it leaves you with one conclusion, that the only way that these cloths could be laying there, the way that they were, is if Jesus had passed right through them. And I think the, the little note about the face cloth being folded up and set off, you know, to me, that's just like icing on the cake. It's like, if you don't get this, get this. Who does this when you're robbing a tomb? Taking a body. Now, it's interesting here that John uses three different words for the word saw in our English translations. In John chapter 20, verse 5, John uses a word that means to glance in and to look at. In verse 6, he uses a word that means to look carefully to observe. And in verse 8, he uses a word that means to perceive with comprehension. Do you see the progression? John looks in, he noticed the grave's clothes lying there. Then Peter comes in and he looks intently and carefully at them as if he was studying them. And then John comes in and he looks closely and believed. Wow. But the question you have to ask is believed what? Because it doesn't say. Well, I think it's pretty clear that he believed that Jesus was alive. That Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. Now, they didn't see Jesus yet. But hope was being renewed. Faith was welling up again in both of them. And the evidence was compelling. The stone had been rolled away. The tomb was empty. Jesus' grave clothes were still there. Now here we are 2,000 years removed. And we can't examine the evidence. We weren't there when they entered the tomb we didn't see what they saw, but we do have their testimony. We have their testimony, and it is compelling. And as we'll see next week, this is really what Jesus is after anyway. I don't want to give it away, but next week, Jesus is going to make a, a distinction between those of us who believe because we see and those of us who believe when we don't see. See, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And, and, and so Jesus wants us to take him at his word. He wants us to believe in him and believe his words. But make no mistake about it. Biblical faith is not a, a, a leap in the dark. It's, it's not blind faith. It's faith that is based on the historical record and based on reliable eyewitness testimony. And, and these aren't the only people that saw Jesus. And there are many, many other proofs that we can point to. But I want to stay with our passage here this morning. And I want you to consider what Peter said later in his second epistle. 
He said, we, do not, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We have eyewitness testimony. The kind of testimony that is admissible in a court of law today. And what we really have to come to grips with is the character of, of these eyewitnesses. Can, are they trustworthy? Are they reliable? I just think it's amazing that despite their unbelief and their fear, Peter and John still had the courage to run to the tomb. They risked being out in the open in the morning to see for themselves. They examined the evidence, and the evidence renewed their hope. But the reason for the empty tomb was revealed to Mary Magdalene first. Look with me at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes or to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Apparently, Mary had followed Peter and John back to the tomb, but by the time she got there, they were gone. They had left. Um, either that or if they were there, they were too stunned to say anything to Mary because Mary evidently is not aware of their musings. She isn't aware of, of, of the conclusions that they have come to, especially John. And Mary was found weeping still. You can imagine what this weekend was like for her. I would imagine her eyes would have been almost swollen shut from all the crying that she's been doing. But she is not weeping over Jesus' death at this point. She's weeping over the fact that his body is missing. And she desperately wants to find it. And she stooped to look into the tomb again, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been. And they asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? And her response reveals not only that she didn't she, she didn't have any idea that they were angels. And there, there's nothing in the text that makes me think that, that you know, she was surprised by what she saw. But not only that she had no idea that they were angels, but she had no thought of the resurrection. Even at this point. And see, this is the, this is the thing about the empty tomb. The empty tomb may point to the resurrection, but it doesn't prove the resurrection. In her mind, someone had taken the body of Jesus and she is desperate to find him. And then, for some reason, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there and, 
And, you know, whenever I read that, you know, little phrases like, and then she turned and this, you know, it's like, okay, so that means she must have been facing, you know, the angels. She turned. What made her turn? Did she hear something behind her? Did she catch the gaze of the angels looking over her shoulder, perhaps? We, we don't know. All we know is that she turned around and there he was. Only he didn't, she didn't recognize him. Verse 15. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Jesus asks Mary the same question that the angels had asked. Woman, why are you weeping? And last week I mentioned that Jesus in using the term woman for his mother at the cross and here in this passage, it's actually a word that communicates respect. It wasn't a derogatory term. Jesus is compassionately addressing her in her grief. And then he asks another question. Whom are you seeking? It's almost as if Jesus is asking, why is your heart filled with such sorrow? Why, why are you looking for the living among the dead? See, Mary didn't recognize Jesus. She thought him to be the gardener. Whether this was because she was convinced that somebody had stolen the body, that Jesus was dead, so this couldn't possibly be Jesus, or maybe perhaps she couldn't see through her tears, or maybe even Jesus' identity was being kept from her. We, we don't know. But then all of a sudden, Jesus says her name, Mary, and at once... She knew it was Jesus. She knew how many times she must have heard her name on the lips of the Savior. There was no mistaking it. And immediately she turned back to him and the Aramaic said, Rabboni, which is a form of the word rabbi. And it's, it's an even more courteous term than rabbi. It means my teacher, literally, my teacher, my great one. It carries deeper respect than the term rabbi. There was just something about how Jesus called her name. And that shouldn't surprise us because back in John chapter 10, I believe it was chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And they listen to me. And he calls his own sheep by name. 
And that's exactly what he does here with Mary. They hear his voice and they follow him. Let me ask you, are you one of his sheep? Have you heard Jesus call your name? Are you following him? Now, if Mary had had her way, she would never have let go of Jesus. I mean, you can just, you can just see it, picture it. You know, she's there clinging to Jesus. She says, now that I found you, I'm never going to let you go. But, of course, Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. And then he says, go tell my brothers. Tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, this is really, really important here. There are two things that Jesus does here. This is out of the ordinary that you will not find elsewhere in the gospel. Up to this point, Jesus has referred to his disciples as servants. And most recently, as friends. But this is the first time he calls them brothers. Brothers. And in addition to this, in verse 17, it's the only place where Jesus refers to God as the disciple's father. 180 times in the Gospel of John, he speaks about God as father. 27 times he says, my father. 71 times he refers to him as the father. And here he says, go to my disciples, to my brothers. Tell them that I am ascending to my God and your God. My father and your father. Ooh. Do you see what, what has happened through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have been brought into a new and eternal relationship with God. God is now our Father. Jesus is now our brother. Hallelujah. I love how the New Living Translation translates Hebrews 2, uh, 11 and 12. It says, so now Jesus and the ones that he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters, and I will praise you among the assembled people. Wow. How we have gone from the discovery of the empty tomb and the confusion and the panic and the fear that it brought to a renewed hope that Jesus is alive to the realization that Jesus has risen from the dead. If you have heard the Savior's voice calling your name, I hope you have responded. I don't know what you're going through in life right now. We're all at different places. For all I know, there may be somebody here or watching online that's contemplating taking their own life. 
Perhaps you have a terminal disease or going through a painful divorce. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently. Or maybe even have lost your livelihood. Maybe you're pondering, will I ever get married? Will I ever have kids? Maybe you're wondering if God could ever forgive you for the things that you've done. I, I, don't, I don't know where you are. But I know in a group this size that many of us are dealing with things, with, with obstacles and hindrances to the life that God intends for us to live, a victorious Christian life. But I want you to know that regardless of where you find yourself this morning, Jesus is alive. He's here. He's present. And he has conquered the greatest obstacle of all in death. Sin and death have been conquered. And we too can live in victory. Because he lives, we too can live. We too can move from sorrow to joy, from confusion to hope, and from fear to faith. Because of the resurrection, those who believe in him share in his victory over sin and the grave. And the Bible says that we are more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And like Mary, we too have been sent to proclaim the good news to tell others that Jesus is alive Jesus who bore our sin in his body on the cross died in our place and then rose from the dead he has defeated sin and death and triumphed over the grave so that we might reign with him forever the empty tomb resulted in confusion and fear. The implications of the tomb renewed the disciples' hope, but it was the appearance of Jesus to Mary that we finally find the reason why the tomb was empty in the first place. Are you ready for it? Because I'm going to say it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Later in the day, Jesus is going to appear to Peter. Then he's going to appear to the other disciples, uh, minus Thomas. Next week, we're going to take a look at that. But as I close, I want to remind you of what Malcolm Muggeridge said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? It's not a fantasy. It's the sober truth of the gospel. And as the clock of life ticks on, I pray that we will all be carried along on a great tide of joy and peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time this morning and for your word to us. Lord, I thank you 
that you overcame the power of sin and death and you are alive forevermore. And because you are alive, we too can live. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be a single person this morning here or listening online that would fall short of your, your kingdom because, Lord, you have done all that you could do to save us. We must respond to you in repentance and faith and trusting you. And, Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would use us to further your kingdom, that you would use us like Mary to go back to those who need to hear that you are alive and that, Lord, there is mercy and grace to be found in you. Lord Jesus, we love you, we praise you, we give you all the glory. And all of God's people said, amen.